That's the ambulance. That's you know the ambulance? Ah, uh, it's Switzerland. Yeah. Your daddy knows Switzerland it. Switzerland is the best Western country. That's true, right? Why? I thought it was Australia. Hey, podcast listener, you're listening to the Semi Pro Cycling Podcast, the weekly podcast where we discuss all the issues that cyclists talk about. Whether you're out training, commuting, or just riding around, sit down and listen in, because we're about to begin. I got something to say, man. Yo-ho! Welcome to episode 70 of the Semi-Pro Cycling Podcast, where we believe that only a semi-pro cyclist rides for love and not money. If you stick around to the end, I'll fill you in on the quote from the top of the show and let you know who's talking ambulances and Australia. Hey there, semi-pros. My name is Damien Roos. I'm the founder of Semi-Pro Cycling, home of the Semi-Pro Cyclist. And again, another very quick review to get us underway. Perfect five stars from Carl in Wales in the UK. Hi, I have been a keen cyclist for many, many years, but have only recently moved into the 21st century. The contents and reviews within the podcast are perfect. Enough information to give you a good overview so you can incorporate the ideas into your own training or take things further with additional research. All presented in an entertaining way by a very well-informed host whose passion for cycling shines through in every episode. Well, Carl, thank you very much for writing that review. And I don't know what stepping to the 21st century means. Hopefully, it's a bike upgrade and a podcast in your ears. But anyway, how is the riding in Wales? I hope it's not too wet for you. But a reminder to you that if you do like the show, I would love if you gave a five-star review on iTunes because five stars make me go, ha. Thank you very much. Now, the news and articles this week, a couple of gems that I've picked up from the entire interwebs. The first one, the science and medicine of cycling seminar. It is a YouTube clip and it is basically Dr. Andy Pruitt, I don't know if you know this guy, and Dr. Roger Minkow, I definitely didn't know this guy, but they are doing a one and a half hour speech and question session based on all of their aspects of going through the design process for all of the specialized equipment like saddles and how they do their scientific testing of all of that. Now, I don't necessarily follow Dr. Andy Pruitt as a guru of bike fit that he has positioned himself as, but I definitely think there is a lot of cool stuff going around with the design of these products and the ergonomics and fitting that goes into making someone comfortable on a bike. So if you have a spare hour and a half and you're interested in this stuff, I highly recommend you check this one out. The second one comes from the sportsscientist.com website and definitely a hat tip to Alex that got me onto this one. I do know the guys that run it separately from other information that I've come across in the past, but I wasn't aware of this actual website itself, but it is a gem of information. The article that I've picked up here is Cycling Performance, What is Possible? Can Physiology Flag Doping. Now, this is kind of a controversial topic, and these guys are the ones that, if you have come across them before, go through famous climbs and kind of spot out or just expose certain riders for dodgy dodgy practices based on their power to weight ratio or what they believe their VO2 max would have to be to get up a hill in a certain time. But it's definitely a good look into what's possible performance-wise. I won't spoil it, but it gives some really great insights into how to measure a rider's performance and a suggested doping limit for the power to weight ratio. 
Outside of articles, the other news, the semi-pro news, is I will be heading to Sydney on the weekend of the 23rd and 24th of November. So that is in roughly one and a half weeks' time. If you are around, I would love to get in contact with you. I'm going to get in contact with a couple of peeps that have got at me because I put the call out a little bit earlier, but definitely I'm interested in meeting up. I won't have a bike, which is a bit of a bummer, and I probably won't have my kit, which is even more of a bummer, so there's no possibility of a ride, but definitely a meetup of some sort would really, really make my weekend in Sydney. So if you are around and you want to get in touch, do that at either Twitter or Damien at semiprocycling.com. I just spent the weekend in Melbourne. I had a great trip down to Melbourne checking it out. It is such a cycling mecca. There is everyone out on bikes, even if they're not semi-pros, even if they're not into performance. I'm so glad that a city is really embracing cycling, but that's a whole nother topic for a whole nother day. You can get it riding you can get it sliding. You can feel it coming on about four. A hard-earned thirst needs a big cold beer. And the best cold beer is Vic. Vic Bitter. Now down to the nuts and bolts this week. The business of the show. The title of this week's show, Alcohol and Cycling Performance. I know alcohol is one of those things that is socially conditioned into pretty much every single thing we do. But the effects of alcohol on a person definitely depend on the amount that you consume and your individual tolerance to alcohol. Personally, I'm interested in the daily or semi-daily beer or wine consumed rather than the blowout binge on the weekend because we definitely know that one hurts us. But luckily, cycling and alcohol aren't as interrelated as hitting the piss with the boys from the footy. I can't recall a lot of peer pressure from my cycling mates to drink. In fact, on average, I'd say most cyclists I come across drink less alcohol than anybody else I know in society. That's not to say they don't drink at all, though. It's not to say I don't drink at all. I probably drink more than I should. But definitely cyclists, I feel cyclists are less likely to binge drink and more likely to share a nice bottle of wine with you. Me, anyone that knows me knows that I definitely love a beer, which beer to me really is one of the most dangerous alcohols out there. There is so much junk in it, plus there is an extra amount of dead calories. But first, I want to look at how alcohol and cycling performance mix, and my research indicates that the main effects of alcohol intake seem to be indirect, but I'm going to try and tackle performance. It's highly unlikely that you'll ever try to race drunk, right? Maybe some residual left in your system from the night before, but going out drunk, you definitely know, we'll wipe that off the table. There is no performance benefit from doing it, but there are definitely direct effects of alcohol on your body that will indirectly affect your performance and they may be obvious or they may not be but either way they are a very good reminder for you and a lot of this information comes from a couple of great papers one called alcohol athletic performance and recovery and the australian institute of sports alcohol information page and both resources are super cool and you'll get a lot from them and there's a lot of references there that i have missed out on so i will link to these in the show notes and if you want to dig a little deeper, I definitely recommend you start there. Where I'm going to start is dehydration. So alcohol is widely reported as causing dehydration and it is largely dependent on the concentration of the alcoholic drink being consumed. So concentrated drinks such as spirit,
spirits consumed in small glasses or shots, full-strength beers and wine will result in a net fluid loss. However, low-alcohol choices such as mid-strength beers and spirits served in large glasses with non-alcoholic mixers may actually assist athletes to rehydrate following exercise. The funny thing is, when I was younger, I could not picture myself drinking mid-strength or light beers, but as I get older, I feel like I want to continue the habit but drop the alcohol so they become a legitimate choice. Overall, this does feel like it's a little bit of Captain Obvious's advice here, but there is a study that backs this up, and it's called Restoration of Fluid Balance After Exercise-Induced Dehydration Effects of Alcohol Consumption where the effect of alcohol consumption on the restoration of fluid and electric balance after exercise-induced dehydration was investigated. So drinks containing 0, 1, 2, and 4% alcohol were consumed over 60 minutes, beginning 30 minutes after the end of exercise. And a different beverage was consumed in each of the four trials, and the volume consumed was 2,212 plus or minus 153 milliliters. So that is a lot of liquid. The two main things to come out of this were the peak urine flow occurred later with the 4% beverage and the total volume of urine produced in the six hours after rehydration, although not different between trials, tended to increase as the quantity of alcohol ingested increased. Good. That confirms what I mentioned before. And the second one, the increase in blood and plasma volume with rehydration was slower when the 4% beverage was consumed and did not increase to value significantly greater than the dehydrated level. Generally, the increase was an inverse function of the quantity of alcohol consumed. So these results suggest that alcohol has a negligible diuretic effect when consumed in dilute solution after a moderate level of hypohydration induced by exercise in heat. There appears to be no difference in recovery from dehydration whether the rehydration beverage is alcohol-free or contains up to 2% alcohol, but drinks containing 4% alcohol tend to delay the recovery process. Now, I don't know about you, but I really don't consume a lot of 2% alcohol drinks. I know I mentioned Liberia just before, but as a base, I would be drinking something that has 4% alcohol in it, so that's definitely doing some damage in the recovery process. It also makes you splash the thongs a hell of a lot more. So, A 10 milliliter excess urine production was evident following each gram of ethanol consumed. So the mechanism subsequently identified in the inhibition of antidiuretic hormone ADH by ethanol, although this relationship is evident only in beverages containing greater than 4% ethanol, just as the mentioned study suggests. Also, in all that whiz, there is a lot of water-soluble vitamins and minerals that your muscles need for balance and performance. So for athletes, the dehydrating effects of alcohol carry a double whammy. So dehydration is kind of in the short term, but when we start to look at long-term effects, regular binge drinking can add quite significant kilojoules. But when we do talk about beer, we always talk about the carbohydrates in beer as the reason for men putting on weight. And beer contains very little carbohydrate as the sugar in beer is converted into alcohol. It's the alcohol in the beer, not the carbohydrate that is responsible for weight gain. And alcohol has also been shown to increase fat deposition as the body prefers to use alcohol as a fuel source when consumed. If you eat high-fat foods when you're drinking alcohol, the fat in these foods is directed to storage as opposed to being used as a fuel source. 
Bam. That absolutely sucks. So if you go out and you have half a dozen drinks, then their kilojoule intake can increase more quickly than you bargain for. And this is particularly important for athletes aiming to maintain low body fat levels and or low body weight. Not only this, but alcohol is devoid of protein, minerals and vitamins, but it also inhibits your body's ability to absorb these nutrients from food. So you're not only pissing the ones that you have out, you also can't absorb new ones. And when you have Thiamine, vitamin B1, it's involved in protein and fat metabolism as well as the formation of hemoglobin because vitamin B1 plays a role in metabolizing carbohydrates. It is essential to optimal performance. Vitamin B12 helps maintain healthy red blood cells and nerve cells. Folic acid is part of the coenzyme involvement in the formation of new cells. A deficiency in folic acid can result in low oxygen carrying capacity, which can negatively affect your endurance. Zinc plays an important role in process of energy metabolism. Alcohol depletes your body's zinc resources, which can result in a reduction of endurance. Damn. So it's really starting to add up now. And sleep patterns are affected. So while alcohol can make you sleepy initially, it should never be used as a sedative because it disrupts your sleep cycles. Variances in neurological activity have also been intricately linked to a disturbance in sleep length and quality with some authors observing a loss in deep sleep with a shorter time for rapid eye movement sleep, REM sleep, and an increase in sleep at stage one. REM sleep is particularly important for athletes because it's when you consolidate and commit to long-term memory of what you learned during the day. The flow and effects from this are just as crazy though because as you know, if you don't get sleep, then all types of things happen. So the muscle growth is affected, cortisol production increases, testosterone production increases. So without harping on too much, none of this is going to help your cycling performance or recovery. And Speaking of recovery, it's a little up in the air as to what alcohol ingestion does to metabolic pathways of recovery. Alcohol ingestion immediately following prolonged cycling exercise has a modest impact to impair glycogen resynthesis. So this action is dependent in part on alcohol replacing carbohydrates in energy-matched meals. Although acute suppression of glucogen synthesis may have been evident, examination of glycogen repletion over 24 hours demonstrated no long-term detrimental impact impact of alcohol ingestion on muscle glycogen stores, which is good news, I guess, but it's not like this means that you're in the clear just yet. The study was called the effect of small dose of alcohol on endurance performance of trained cyclists. So it's not clear about what more alcohol would do, even though it suggests, like most of these studies, the more alcohol, the greater the chance of doing something bad to your body. And outside of these direct physical effects, Any type of drinking following exercise has numerous indirect effects and especially the more you have. So these again are super duper obvious. I want them to be down and pointed out so they're in your head the next time you pick up a drink. The indirect effects really delay the recovery process and I think that this is where the most of the danger lies because unless you've got a six-star hangover, your drinking may not be felt directly in your performance. Some of the indirect effects of drinking following exercise include being distracted from carrying out appropriate recovery strategies to help the body refuel, rehydrate, and facilitate muscle repair. I don't know about you, but the only time I would ever do that is at the end of my peak race where I just want to celebrate and I forget about my body for a couple of weeks afterwards and I don't do anything like a cool down or anything related to the proper way that I should be recovering to help my body to get ready for the next day. But it may also relax your attitude towards certain foods, which is 
super dangerous. It may also fail to follow up appropriate injury rehabilitation and management. And the final one here, it might place yourself in increased risk of violence or being involved in a brawl, leading to serious injury and adverse publicity. Just ask my wife about that one. But I don't know how far along you are in pouring out the bottle of beer right now, but next is my solution, and definitely a disclaimer here, it's pretty serious. Not in an alcoholic way, but if you have a handle on your odd glass of vino, then it may not appeal to you, but stick around because it does have other implications though. So let's talk strategy. I could talk about tactics all day long, but I'd rather look at some strategy, well, at least initially, because... I really think that overall strategy and the first thing to ask yourself is why. Why do you drink? Well, probably a better question is why do you not want to drink? And then looking at the habits around your drinking. And this type of thinking can be a really good reminder as to why you want to do something crazy like stopping drinking in the first place. And it will really keep you focused on the big picture if that's something you want to curb, whether it is short term or long term. So here it is. My best advice if you want to curb your drinking. Stop drinking. A little obvious, I know, but there is some deeper thinking behind this, and it is that if you make it black and white, this decision is gone from your life. So it frees up your brain and leaves nothing to chance. And the answer to every alcohol question just becomes no. So same goes for having no alcohol in your home. Keep it out and you'll be less likely to drink it. Just like dodgy food you buy and bring into your house, ultimately, if you want to avoid it, Any alcohol in your home will eventually get consumed. Speaking of food, you can follow this theory through to eating the same meals, dressing in the same clothes. Just think of Steve Jobs and the skivvy. It sounds unnecessarily constricting, but in fact, it's quite freeing. And I've gone through this in a habits podcast previously, but your mind has greater capacity to be used for more high bandwidth activities and it will give you greater focus every single day day. The second iteration of this is having a designated day to drink on. It's kind of like a binge food day, but it's just drink. And I don't encourage binge drinking because it can get tricky. How many times have you said to yourself that you'll have just one, but you've continued on? I'm not even sure you should bother setting a limit with this. Instead, I think the way to go is, as a bit of positive reinforcement, before you have your first drink, plan out your next day. Because we all know semi-pros have tight schedules, so if you're looking at what you have to do the next day, it will hopefully give you a reminder to take it easy the night before, and especially if you have training, so hopefully you avoid that slinky late afternoon ride. But in conclusion, alcohol, as I think I have shown you, is a bully in the body. It pushes aside protein, carbohydrate, and other nutrients which muscles need for recovery and growth, and it demands to be metabolized first. It always takes precedence, and this deprives your post-exercise body of what it needs most, and thereby sabotages improvement. Pretty strong words, but I do stand by those. It's not all dire, but as I have tried to get across, there is definitely a reason that most pros don't drink a lot in season. Who knows what they're doing right now? But the long-term effects also of alcohol in the body are also another reason outside of performance to consider 
And don't worry, when we meet one day, I will definitely still have a beer with you. Down to the tech hacks and products section, here is a mental hack. Well, it's more of a mental shift, and it's a hat tip to my buddy Andy. I was having a chat the other day, and he mentioned something about warm-ups, which he disagreed with me in some ways, and it made perfect sense to me. So here it is. Don't let the sensations in your warm-up dictate how you go in the race. If you've already decided that your body is not responding well in your warm-up, then your mind is already responding that you're not going to do well in the race, when in fact... It may just be emotion speaking. In fact, you may have performed well in the past based on a bad warm-up or no warm-up at all, or you've done an over-warm-up or a really crappy one or a really good one. Don't let the emotion of the day creep up and overwhelm you and think just because your body isn't responding exactly how you want it to, that doesn't mean that your race is going to be blown before it even gets going. Have that flexibility in your plan. And I really think something like this falls more under that idea that I was talking about last week of anti-fragile. I really think that something like this can work to your benefit if it is a really stinking hot day and you don't warm up because you'll know your body is already warm or it's a really, really cold day and you just stay in the car warm until you jump on your bike and then go... I think that that can be used in your advantage, especially against your competition. And again, hat tip for Andy for dropping this knowledge on me, and I'm now passing it to you, and I hope it really changes the way you think about your warm-up and in any situation where you can't do the one you normally do, that you still have a killer ride. Now, that quote from the top of the show, it's Fabian and O'Grady's kids plus one smart-ass comment from Schleck in the background. But not that I like using someone's kids to leverage a point, but I will in this case, and it is, Stewie, where the fuck are you? Your silence is now defining you. It's destroying the relationship that you built up with the fans, and I believe that it serves absolutely no purpose for you or the new generation of cyclists. It also allows things to go on that should never go on. So Stewie, it's time to come out of your silence. It's time to talk to whoever you want to talk to or even just come out on Twitter and say something. Now is the time to break your silence or people like me, one of your big fans for a long time, will definitely be lost forever. And that is it. So till next week, get on your bike and enjoy the pain cave or the hurt box, whichever one you're into. (laughs) 